0: Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. So tell us a little bit about your journey into philosophy and uh, your journey, especially in regards to this topic, how you decided to write on it.
1: All right. So I never decided to become a philosopher. I, I, I grew up in this like artsy family. My, my father, is, he's a painter. My mother was a teacher, but she was like at heart. She was uh, or is a uh, an author and uh, several of my mm-hmm. siblings uh, became musicians. Uh, i only have one brother he's the, the black sheep of the family i'm just kidding sorry dana uh, <laughs> uh because he became like a consultant so uh, but but then uh, so i mean so my first idea was definitely to become an actress so uh, that was like my goal in life but then um i i moved to stockholm to to um to go to follow this like night course that was like supposed to be really good to prepare myself to, so that I could get into one of the big um, uh, acting schools, and uh, I remember like one point ending up in a library and like oh my god I like I miss <laughs> I thought everyone I, I thought it was so strange to be an actor like I thought that like to be an actor was like being an artist like so that you just stood there and you were yourself and you just like said things to people and like you know you could express yourself but it turns out that like to be an actor is to be someone else like to, to pretend to be someone else or actually to be someone else like and uh, I mean right. I was super bad at that like it was horrible. <laughs> So, um, uh, so then I I, I started to reconsider. So I went back to university and um, I started because, because I wanted to be an actor, I thought like, or I had wanted to become an actor, I thought I should uh, study drama, theater and film, which was a subject then. And so I, I did that. And then I needed a couple more points to be able to move on to the next stage in the Swedish education system. So And it was summer, and I went to visit my parents, and I met my old uh, philosophy teacher from like high school or whatever it's called. Like the Swedish education system is slightly different from the American one, but anyway. And uh, I was like, I need to study something more before I can move on to write a thesis in film. And he said, like, well, you have to study the basics. You have to study philosophy. And that was kind of surprising to me because like he was this philosophy teacher who the only thing we learned from him was like basic uh, sentential logic, (laughs) like derivations in sentential logic. So it was like not perfect. Uh, But anyway, so I thought like, okay, I'll do that. So I just, that's why I started to do philosophy. It wasn't like I was sitting, you know, I'm this deep person, I'm reading these philosophers. No, no, no. I was like chance encounter with a teacher that I didn't really appreciate. <laughs> he <laughs> said, why don't you study philosophy? And then I did. But, mm. you know, when I started to study philosophy, that was like, uh, that. Was, I mean, it was a two-stage thing. So the first thing that I really loved about studying philosophy was um, uh, the method of it. Like, I didn't really care about the content. I cared about how you did things. Like, it felt like I didn't know how to think before I did philosophy because I didn't have a method. I just like read stuff randomly, had like nice, interesting thought, but I didn't know how to kind of organize things. And I, like later I found this entry like in in an old diary where I said like, it's fantastic. I was very like young. (laughs) So I said like, oh, I'm starting to organize my thoughts in color to begin with. You should remember that I was like very much like I'm artsy and like I want to be an actor. That was it. But then so so that's the first thing that happened. Like I really loved that. But then the other thing was that I had no idea that you can like I'm not from an academic family. So I when I started studying and I didn't know that like I I mean, I seriously didn't know like you could have a doctorate, whatever that was. Like I, I didn't understand any of that. So I just so this has been my whole career. Like I just like this, and then I thought, can I want to do this a bit more? <laughs> do I do do that, and then okay, I, I go on and do a like do a PhD, but I didn't really understand what that meant either. So I started doing a PhD, <laughs> and and then like oh, you're supposed to like, write this thing, and then you move like so this it just continued like this my whole career like, but all the time I was just driven by this like love of this thing, thing I was doing. I, I really, really like philosophy. I really hate writing philosophy because it's just so damn hard and, you know, I feel so <laughs> all the time. But I really, really, like, I, like it fits me <laughs> to do philosophy. Yeah. Like, I really, I like it, but I hate it. Like, it's a love-hate thing. So that's, that's what like how I became became a philosopher. That sounds horrific in my head. Like, you know, yes. a philosopher, that's too too grand, but anyway. But then yeah, when, yeah, yeah. It, but when it comes to properties, um, mm. so the thing about properties is that uh, when I was supposed to write my um, I think it was like my BA thesis uh, in, in philosophy or in theoretical philosophy, we have like theoretical and practical philosophy in Sweden. I I started to think about like what am I interested in? And so one thing that I'm I was really interested in, and I'm still interested in it, was the, the, the idea of change. Like, like so what happens when, when there is change? Like, what is change? And uh as the then budding analytic philosopher I was, I started to break it down. So I was like, yeah, so when something uh changes, it kind of, you know, it 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 remains the same through, like, uh, a switch in qualities or, or or properties. And so, my first my first B A my B A thesis was on like identity through change. So with a, an emphasis on identity. And then when I was supposed to write my M A thesis, I thought I, I I was still hung up on on change. So, and then I thought like, okay, so. So there's identity, but there's also this, this change, and the change is in the properties of a thing. So in order to understand change, we need to understand what these properties are. And then I I just stumbled across this paper by Donald Williams, DC Williams, uh, on the elements of be, uh, being. and. Um, And that was uh, an early, very little acknowledged at that time, uh, paper on tropes, which is a theory of properties where properties are understood as particulars. And uh, there was hardly any discussion of it. So it was just by chance that I stumbled upon this paper. So I wrote my MA thesis on this trope theory. uh, And then I went on to do a a, a PhD thesis also on trope theory. And uh, so that's a theory of properties. And um, and I mean, so I I was lucky because I I just stumbled aclo- across this paper very early, so I was it was one of the first monographs on on tropes, but they, like so tropes was the first my first entry into the to the field of properties, and then I'm just like there, there's so much of interest when it comes to properties. So one thing is that the question of what properties are, so are they tropes, are they universals, and so on. But another thing that also interested me, and that was actually kind of the, perhaps the uh, uh, the more central thing about my thesis, was the, that I started then to also, my, my true love in philosophy, I started to focus in on like meta-questions. <laughs> uh, so not just like, what are properties like, but like, what are, well, you know, why why do we need this category of properties uh, like what can count as a property like in virtue of what do we argue like w- what are our reasons for or against this or that type of positive metaphysics and so on so so a lot in my PhD thesis like is focused on these types of issues, and that's also where most of my focus has been uh, in in the last couple of years and and I think that the the uh, the book uh, on properties that's now coming out is uh, is as Is an expression of that because it's also on like um, it's it's more on the meta level when it comes to questions about properties like what's going on when we are arguing when 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 someone says properties exist or when someone else says no they don't because like very often it's not it's not clear at least that they're even talking about the same thing and so that's that's one of the things I'm trying to make clear in that book so.
0: Yeah and so uh, actually I think by the time that this episode comes out I think the book will be out. It's coming yeah. out in late June, right? Yeah. Um and so we're about 2 or 3 months ahead. So the book is Properties um, from the Element series. Uh, is it I should know this. I want to say Cambridge Press. Yes, I could be wrong. it's Cambridge. Yes. Okay. Um and so people can look for that. It's a it's a fascinating introduction and I, I love that you took the meta approach. Uh, You know, you mentioned in here uh, that instead of providing in-depth introductions to the various views on properties, you focus on what are the problems that properties kind of deal with and uh, how should we think? Like, I, I really appreciated this because you kind of start off by talking about realism versus nominalism. And I would read even primary sources in undergrad. Uh, of philosophers and I felt like I understood what they were saying and then people would start to categorize them as realists or nominalists and I had no idea why they were put in one camp or the other yeah. like someone would say well realists believe this and then they would put I can't even remember who they would put in there they'd they'd put someone in there and I'd be like but that's not what his theory really says I could understand the specific theory but the the labels seem to actually get in the way of understanding I mean labels. Um, so, I mean these
1: these types of distinctions: realism, nominalism, realism, anti-realism, uh, and so on and so forth. They're they're really interesting because they can be used to say something interesting. It's just that they have been used to say so many different interesting things so yeah. that things very easily become confused. I think like, so. I think there's 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 the problem. Um, yeah. So
0: think- the the equivocation of the language.
1: Yeah, I mean, and even if it's, even when people are reasonably clear, so if you look carefully, they will tell you what they mean by saying that something is a realist theory or or an anti-realist theory or anomalous theory and so on. Um, I'm not sure that, like, sometimes that message gets lost, I think, because we Mm. read into these terms (laughs) a lot that's perhaps not in there necessarily in every instance, so... So we need to be. I mean, that's one of the things I like about philosophy that we need to be so careful all the time. Right, like it's frustrating, but it's also very nice. Like, yeah,
0: yeah. It's yeah. probably a sign of my own impatience. Yeah, of I'm like I, I, you know, I want more out of the labels than mer- perhaps they're even offering. Um, if you don't mind, just kind of guiding us through that discussion of how best, because I think you kind of start there with real talking about realism and, and nominalism um can you talk us through that issue and talk us through uh because you you, what you start to do is you start to break down the different types of questions that are represented it's not just that there there are positions that are held in that it's like well what do you mean when you say you're a realist and you give uh i believe it's Aquinian versions you have obviously platonic um and so uh I, i would love to understand uh Obviously, those terms have been used in slightly different ways to cover different things. So, what are those important questions that we need to ask to to get at what people are are referring to?
1: I mean, so first, I think we need to um, make clear what problem we like think that properties are there to solve. And so, so I think that there are several like different questions or problems that people have introduced properties to for that they think that properties are needed to solve and so if 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 i say that properties exist and you say that they don't then maybe we are not necessarily we do it's not clear that we're disagreeing until we know that we are saying that uh, what what i'm saying is that uh, there is this problem blah and we need properties to solve it and you say There is, yes, there is that problem, and no, properties are not needed to solve that. Like, so that's the first thing that needs to be agreed upon. But the second, another thing that we need to try to get to grips with, with like difficult, is that if I say that properties exist and you say that they don't, um, we also have to make clear that we need we mean the same thing by properties. Like if this is supposed to be like a real disagreement. We need to agree on what properties are, right? <laughs> and 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 here I think there's a lot of uh, unclarity in the literature. So some some views that we categorize as, as nominalist, um, they what they posit are really like they what they posit are really th- entities or things so whatever you want to call them, like classes of uh, resemblance, classes of objects or things like that, that like that play all of the property roles, like so. So suppose that the problem is or the problem is like suppose that we agree that something must play the property role, and I say that well it's the Platonic universal that plays the property role, and you say it's a resemblance class of objects that play uh, the property role, then um, and then and then for some reason the thing I pick out in the world that plays the property role is a property, whereas the thing that you pick out in the world uh, that plays exactly the same role is not supposed to be called a property. That, so sometimes those things can be make, that's a bit like confusing to me. So th- mm. this like label of property, uh, it's unclear, like what it's supposed to do, because then if we look at the, the different views that you know are uh, that everyone agrees, like what they posit are properties. If they're true, there are properties. Those things are also very different from each other. So, so there's a big difference between the type of uh, entity accepted by a Platonic realist or a Platonic uh, universal realist and the type of entity accepted by a trope theorist, for instance. Uh, Yet, they are both properties, but for some reason, most philosophers seem to think that resemblance classes of objects, which play exactly the same role as these other things, are not properties. So it seems to me that we are in need of some sort of more like principled reason to to make these distinctions, or like for why we label one thing a property and one another thing not. Or, you know, whether or not properties exist is less interesting than whether or not, things playing the property role exist, right? So that's the real question.
0: Right, right. And uh, because a lot of times, so if I'm following you, you have philosophers who don't want to use the term property, but really they're talking about things that act like properties because someone else that they are reacting to used properties in a way that they thought was illegitimate.
1: I I mean, so in my mind, what they're disagreeing about is the nature of whatever plays the property role. If you want to call them properties. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, the, the, it's a bit confusing, I think. Yes. Um, but I mean, on the other hand, we should remember that the debate on properties is one of the oldest debates in the book. And so that's also one reason why it's a bit confusing sometimes. Uh, as The longer a, a debate has been allowed to continue, uh, of course, like the use of, of, of the terminology, like it's gone through so many different stages. And so uh, I, I guess this type of thing easily happens. So I mean, yeah. it's not it's not really a critique. It's more, from my point of view, it's more like a call for caution. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, so we shouldn't be too quick to like just assume that we know what's going on in these debates. We have to make it clear to ourselves what's going on, and like where are the real points of contention. Um, And sometimes if we want to distinguish, say, a view on properties where uh, that's supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, different from some of the more like realist or Views like say you you mentioned before like more like Quinean views or so something. I'm not saying it's Quine's view because I I think that's a different story. But like Quinean views that argue that seem to me to argue from language uh, to the existence or not of properties. Uh, if if there's supposed to be a real difference between what those people are saying and what more like people with an other view on how we conclude that properties exist or not, then uh, then we 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 have to decide on what. It is we're doing. Like so, some Quineans, it seems to me, are. Although they don't say it out loud, they are doing something. They are claiming to do something pretty radical. Like they, they seem to be saying that whether or not properties exist out there, uh, is something we can decide solely uh, by studying language. And so, mm. if that's the view, uh, then that's the view that those people need to defend, for instance. And so that's also something that's pretty unclear, I think, in in some of the literature. And by the way, something that I kind of criticize in that book, so I don't think you can do that. Like, I think there will be issues to do with properties that will be undecidable uh, if all you have to go on is uh, is language.
0: Yes, and you, and you get into that, that becomes like a, a whole section of uh, this, this monograph this this book here uh, as we talk about um for you there's linguistic and non-linguistic accounts of properties can you and to me that made a little more sense in my head do you mind describing that to our listeners what is the distinction between linguistic uh property or properties that follow this kind of linguistic turn versus i shouldn't say turn i think that's a a different thing (laughs) (laughs) the words around this and and I just want to say on one side that I think I I really appreciate that you keep the complexity in your work because I think they're one of the things that people do that lends to a lot of the confusion that you are critiquing is they simplify positions into Mm -hmm. straw men in order to make them more accessible and it actually just makes things worse so anyways <laughs> so I understand. I said linguistic turn. I realize that that's like yeah. a 20th century history of philosophy term. Do not want to say that. Uh, I'm looking for exactly how you you put no, it. I mean, it's so, uh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: So I think I, so. The distinction I have in mind uh, uh, is a distinction between two ways of you know uh, two two ways of reasoning to the existence or not of properties. So so to what i call go linguistic uh is to that's uh, what sorry i couldn't remember I, I, thank you <laughs> so, is is someone who goes linguistic is someone who uh who who holds is so who thinks that you can argue uh to the conclusion that either that props exists or not like depending on like what the evidence is uh, solely on the basis of considerations to do with language Uh, And and like the most prominent way of doing this is the Quinean way where you uh, take uh, ordinary uh, true sentences and then you uh, paraphrase them into first-order predicate logic and then you see what we need to uh, quantify over and then you conclude that whatever we need to quantify over uh, exists. And so should it happen that, you know, properties uh, are among the things that we need to quantify over, then properties exist. Um, Now, I'm pretty sure that many of the people who do something like this would object uh, to the claim that they are uh, arguing for the existence of properties or against the existence of properties solely on the basis of language. And I'm fine with that. It's just that that's not how it sounds (laughs) sometimes (laughs) when when you look at the literature. Because I think they're right in the sense that I don't think you can argue for either either for or against uh, the existence of properties uh, solely on the basis of language. And an important reason for that is that uh, in order to argue for or against the existence of properties from language, you need to assume things about language. And I think it's almost unavoidable that the things that you assume about the nature of language and how language works, etc., Will be informed by your views on whether properties exist or not. So, the, so the whole like justification for or against properties will be question begging. That's that's I that's what I ex- suspect at least. If yes. your justification is solely linguistic, and so in the other camp are those who uh, go what I call go non-linguistic. And to go non-linguistic doesn't mean that you necessarily hold that you should not or cannot argue for or against the existence of properties from language. It's that what you reject is that you can do solely, do this solely on the basis of arguments from language. So you need something more or else. And this is one of the things that, that kind of I've tried to argue for, I think, in my whole career. So I've argued for the necessity of doing metaphysics, like you have to do hardcore metaphysics, whether you want it or not. So that's like one of the things I very often try to argue for. And that's one of the things I argue for in this book in the context of properties. Uh, just like I, I tend to argue also, I mean, I, one of an, another thing that I love to argue for, but I don't think I do it like explicitly here, but it's in the background, is that sometimes people seem to think that like if you if you take a say a linguistic approach to a certain subject matter concerning the existence of whatnot, in a sense you have like deflated that uh, debate so that you uh, it's not really a substantial debate or like it's not you don't have to do this dirty horrible like metaphysics which is like super you know unclear and there are no rules <laughs> and uh, I I. That's another thing that I think follows: is that like it's very, very difficult to deflate these types of um, issues. You have to do you have to get down and dirty. Like you have to do like not very satisfying, not super precise, not you know logically regimented reasoning. You have to do that, like because otherwise you will not be able to conclude either that properties exist or that they don't, for instance. Uh, so, so that's that's I mean I think that's the it was interesting when I when I so these elements like these books or booklets they're pretty short in this element series they're supposed to be some sort of like it's unclear to me what they are like they're supposed to be some sort of like uh, opinionated not introduction but like like. But they should should be in some sense accessible, but still they should contribute, uh, you know, uh, something. So my original idea was not to argue for anything. It was like more to. So I saw these like two schools of thoughts when it comes to properties, like those who are very like focused on, you know, predicates and nominalizations, and, you know, so paraphrasing and, and you know these linguistic like approaches to to to. To, to discussing properties and then I saw this other school that was like truth maker theorist, theorist grounding theoretical like they were like very separate and um, I wanted to just like uh, clearly make it clear how different these are but then like it turned a little bit into an argument uh, also for 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 not going entirely linguistic. so yeah <laughs> uh,
0: can you give uh, I mean you just said that you are you argued against it but for our listeners, can you give an example of taking, um, a statement, you know, you use, and I I was curious who this poor woman in the olive green coat was that you keep picking on throughout your paper. (laughs) But, um, if if you take, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the woman, uh, you know, uh, there's a woman wearing an olive green coat. How would you from a linguistic point of view from a, Quinean, not to be confused with Quine himself, which I which is fair because there's Plato and then there's Platonic and there's Neo-Platonic. Like yeah. all these guys are actually quite different, you know, Kant and Kantian. Um, yeah. But how would you break that down into first order uh, yeah. logic? I
1: mean, so so the Quinean idea of how to uh, how to find out like what there is, and so and and now I'm just assuming that the very unclear to me if what Quine was after was like a metaphysical conclusion like so I'm I, I think with many I think that what Quine was after was you know a list of things that you know um, that we need to that that we need to assume exist in order for our theories to be true like that's a different thing than saying that these are the things that exist, you know, That's which is like probably a much more heavy duty thing to say. Okay, so that's. Mm. But suppose that like what we're trying to do is to find out if there are properties in, out there in the world uh, through linguistic analysis. Then if you're a Quinean, what you will do is you will take st- statements like uh, this woman's coat is olive green. And then you will, uh, and that's a, like, that's a typical so called subject predicate sentence uh, statement. So it has this form. Sometimes you put in terms like A is F, for instance, where F is the property or predicate that you attribute to the uh, quote, or in this case, like the, the subject A. Okay. And then what you say is that although this looks like a subject predicate statement, it really isn't. So in order to find out what the real like form of this statement is, we need to um, translate it into or we need to put it in first order predicate logical form. And when we do that, we realize that it's not a subject predicate statement, it's an existential generalization. So what the statement says is that there is something that is uh, a coat and that belongs to this woman and that is Oliver green, for instance. And so, and this means that we're saying what we are claiming the existence is this something that has these like features. And for most subject predicate statements, the something that comes out, uh, like the, the something that we, as these people put, like quantify over, will be like, will clearly be an object. Like, so in this case, the something that's olive green is clearly an object. It's the coach, right? So coats right, right, right. Uh, are objects, whatever objects are, but like they they don't seem to be properties, um, and so uh, and and that's why uh, what what we need to accept the existence of in this case, although the original statement mentioned two things, that woman's coat and is olive green, so that might make you think that we need to accept the existence of both coats and greenness. Uh, we don't uh, if we accept this like way of thinking. So all we need to accept the existence of our coats, for instance, or like objects, and uh, and uh, and so so we and then we can conclude that uh, properties don't exist. Of course, then there are these other statements that are also mentioned in in the booklet, uh, namely for namely statements where the subject term see is what some some people call a nominalization, namely um, a term that like has the function of of the same function as the term that woman's coat, for instance. But uh, when we make these transformations into first-order predicate logic, the, the, the something that exists doesn't seem to be an object. So we take, for instance, uh, humility is a virtue, so um, it's a, an example I used. So if we take right. humility as a virtue, like on its surface, it looks like a subject predicate ter- uh, statement. So with humility as the subject, and then we, we turn it into like, we translate it into second order, uh, first order predicate logic. And so we get, there is something uh, that is a virtue. Okay. So this something that it doesn't seem to be the same type of something as that woman's coat, right? <laughs> so it, it does seem like uh, like a property. So by that, like with the help of the same um, same uh, technique, so to speak, it seems that we we need to accept the existence of some properties. Uh, but of course, the Quineans then like have this idea that we have we can we can paraphrase away this apparent reference to uh, properties. Uh, I don't know if you want me to get into that, but like so that's at least well that's an example of that. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear more about the the paraphrasing side of it. Okay, and that, that gets bound up with hermit, like, uh, I believe they use the term herm- hermeneutic there, but maybe I'm misremembering that.
1: Yeah, so, that. okay, so paraphrase is very central to Quine and to um, many of the later Quineans. Um, and um, so, so suppose that you are, you, you'd like not to. <laughs> you'd prefer it if you didn't have to accept the existence of properties, which is quite common among many of these um, these Quinean philosophers. Uh, then uh, you might think that uh, a statement like "humility is a virtue" uh, it's not just that it's not a subject. It's not really a subject-predicate statement, but actually a, an existential generalization. It's also that like. The subject-predicate statement that we started with, like "humility is a virtue," like that doesn't really capture uh, what we were, like what what that statement says. So we could see if there is a way of like uh, putting what that statement says more accurately. And so, for instance, we could try for, we could try to say that like what 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 the uh, "humility is a virtue" says is that uh, uh I don't know uh, what do you call it like if you. If you're a person, hum, humility, no, I'm just, my English, let's see, uh, uh, people who are, what's the. Humble? Humble, that's the word. Yes, humble I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are, yeah, thank you. Humble people are virtuous people. And so mm-hmm. when we, if, that's probably a bad paraphrase, but never mind, let's suppose it's a good one. <laughs> then that statement—I mean, it's a bad one because it doesn't seem like uh, it. Even if it's true that humility is a virtue, it doesn't seem like it needs to be true that humble people are virtuous people because because people have a lot of different uh, virtues and sins or whatever. So that like even if you're humble, you may have like really really bad things also. So that maybe you're not virtuous. But anyway. Uh, um, and then um,
0: uh, it would be like somewhat virtuous or something like that. Or I don't
1: know. Like I know. I mean, if you're like suppose you're humble, but you're like a crazy murderer. <laughs> like you're you're humble about it. Like I don't know if you're virtuous at all. But like I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I am not i not i do not do like virtue stuff. I just do bi- super abstract stuff. So what do I know? But it seems to yes, me that you're... that's at least least open question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so yeah, if yeah. you take I...
1: humble, so suppose it's a good paraphrase of the original statement, then if you take that statement and translate it into a first order predicate logic, what you will end up quantifying over are persons, not humility. And so that's a good thing if you don't want to accept the existence of, of properties. Now, when it comes to this distinction between like revolutionary and hermeneutic, there are many different terms that you can use for this. Like, Hermeneutic or revolutionary types of, um, of, of of paraphrasing. So, so one thing that complicates things here, if we want to understand the Quinean method as a way of, underst- of uh, finding out if the world includes properties or not, then since paraphrasing is playing such an important role here, you need to understand what paraphrasing does. Like, so I've said things like. Uh, we paraphrase uh, the original statement in this, we, the paraphrase is what the original statement says, or like really says. I've, I've said some of those things just now, but but the thing is, it's like a little bit co- more complicated than that. So someone like Quine, it seems, and that's what I was like talking about before, seems to view paraphrasing as a way to make clear, not what the original statement says, but what I mean by the original statement, like what I, like the beliefs behind, so I said, uh, humility is a virtue because, because, you know, I believe that, you know, so it's, it's it's a way of like, kind of like making clear what I, uh, am, believe my theory ontologically commits me to. So in that sense, it's a way of reporting what I believe, right? Uh, whereas, so that's what's sometimes called uh, re- revolutionary um, paraphrasing. And and that means that the paraphrase and the paraphrasee need not be synonymous. They don't have to mean the same thing. Whereas uh, if so we mean, want to- understand- Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, go on.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say, uh, as I, as I'm listening here, how does that correspond with um, when Wittgenstein is talking about uh, about language? It seems uh, kind of similar there when he Wittgenstein talks about thinking is not something that's like kind of this abstract thing. It's literally happening like in your hand as you're writing, if that makes sense. And is that like when we talk about, so when you say humility is a virtue, the reason oh. you'd paraphrase it as a humble person is virtuous is because you're really get by, by paraphrasing it, you're really getting at uh, when I say humble, I'm thinking of a humble person, right? I'm thinking about an object uh, and it, the circumstances surrounding it, which eventually not, is where you go ahead.
1: So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure to be honest. I'm not entirely yeah. sure what's going on in, in this, like in, in, in this in this way of understanding paraphrasing. But that could be something like that. I mean, I think the only thing I'm pretty sure of is that it's not the same as like, you know, like if, if you have the other view on, on, on paraphrasing would be call hermeneutical uh, paraphrasing, then what you're doing, like you're taking one statement and then you're saying there's this other statement That means the same thing, but it's like in one way or another more transparent when it comes to like what this statement ontologically commits me to, and so uh, and and that that way of understanding paraphrasing does require synonymy, it seems to me, whereas the other type, whatever it is, (laughs) doesn't. Right. And uh, and the other thing that's important to note is that like. It seems to me, at least, that only if there is synonymy between the paraphrase and the paraphrase, uh, can um, can we can can is paraphrasing a legitimate way of reasoning if what we want is uh, some way of justifying our ontological conclusions, not just reporting them, like not just reporting, you know, our belie- our ontological beliefs going in. So, if we want uh, to use paraphrasing as a way to clarify what must exist or what there is, then there, then paraphrasing has to be, um, it seems to me, hermeneutical. Not just it doesn't seem just to me; like it seems to some other people. Right, as well. right. And the thing about that is that that's problematic, of course, because if we have two statements, like one that uh, if we ha- if we were to um, uh, turn humility is a virtue into first order uh, predicate logic, then we would have to quantify over humility. So properties would exist. And then we have another statement, humble people are virtuous people. And if we were to turn that into a first order predicate logic, uh, then we would conclude, then we would have to quantify only over persons. So we would not have to conclude that properties exist. Now, then we can ask ourselves, if these two are synonymous that, so they are symmetrically related, why should we listen? To, like, why is one of them ontologically more revealing than the other? Like, why should we accept the existence? Not why should we not accept the existence of properties, or why should we accept the existence of properties? Like, it's unclear on what grounds we can say that one is the paraphrase of the other. Where clearly, because they're synonymous, it seems like they can both count as the paraphrase of the other, so to speak. So that's a problem okay. if you want to argue for the existence of properties solely from language, it seems to me, yes.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes me feel much better because as you were describing it, I was like, but if they just say the same thing, why Why does that help anything? And yeah. then you you said that's your critique and then I was like, oh, okay, I am tracking with you. So if that is what they're, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wait, that doesn't make sense. And you're like, it doesn't make sense. I'm like, oh, okay, phew, <laughs> I'm tracking with you. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and so all of these, you know, and I want to make sure we have enough time to cover, like, you know, that non, uh, going Mm non-linguistic, but, um, uh, just real quick, because a lot of this for the way you kind of set it up is that this is a way to answer the question of the one over the many. Can you describe that Mm -hmm. problem? I probably should have started with that, but yeah, I think before we go non-linguistic, We can at least describe what that that main issue is that we're talking about with properties.
1: So, I mean, this is a very traditional way of thinking of uh, the problem or the problems of properties, and and uh, it's kind of a it's a way of thinking of the problem that I like. So, because it's this way of approaching philosophy uh, through like very mundane observations of reality, I really like that. So, I really I think I very like in metaphysics, I very often think of the kind of explanatory tasks that we're involved in as, uh, as uh, the job of, like, uh, giving uh, some sort of account of obvious truths, right?
0: And yeah, so in this yeah. case,
1: uh, the obvious truth, uh, the obvious, like, the um, trivial observation is that uh, many... The Morian
0: people- fact. Yeah. Right? is that
1: So is that many things appear, Many distinct things appear to have something in common. so there's there are ones that run through many. And there are like so very often that um, fact is put in terms of um, like an experiential fact. So like it seems to like so many things can seem to us to have uh, distinct things seem to us to have something in uh, common it's important that we don't say that they have something in common because that seems to prejudge the issue in, uh, in universal realism's, um, uh, like favor, but, but the, the, the observation is like super simple. It's like, uh, so here's one thing and here's another, those two things appear to have a couple of things together. Like, it's like, if you want, if you like, it's it's sort of like empirical facts. uh, So it's a sort of like observational facts. It's just that, like, they're so unproblematic, seems to me. Like, we really yeah. don't want our theories not to be able to, like, account for them. Like, there, there yes. should be something in our theory that, like, makes sense of these trivial observations. Then there are so two. For, like, yeah, sorry.
0: Oh, I just want to say so. Like, as an example of like two, like, uh, as much as there are different shades of red, it, like, we can clearly communicate with one another about, like. Hey, you're looking for, even if you've never seen it before, and I tell you, you're looking for a red balloon or a red car. You're going to have some idea of what you're looking for, even if you haven't seen that individual particular thing based on your experience of red in other objects. Experience of red, I I know it's probably...
1: (laughs) That's interesting also because this is both a very trivial... Like observation, like that distinct things can have something in common. Like, we don't even have, yes. to have words for it. Like, at least in one version, we don't have to have words for it. Uh, but it's also like, it's also an important, like, super central fact for our survival. Like, suppose that we couldn't. <laughs> Like classify things like with respect to like similarity across distinctions. So like now I'm eating this like uh, this mushroom. It's red and it has white dots on it. And like oh oh, and then you know <laughs> tomorrow I just pick up another like mushroom and I have no. Like, I, I mean, yeah, you can't. That would be bad, right? <laughs> right, right. So clearly, it's very basic in us. Then of course there, there is also this linguistic version of this, uh, and that's that we use uh, certain words to describe, like to, to we attribute certain terms to more than one. Like, um, so let's put that there. So there are certain terms, sometimes called predicates, like "is olive green," that can be attributed, like truly, to more than one subject term, uh, like this woman's coat, but also that man's hat, for instance, port people like these olive green things and forest green as i write in my book is clearly the preferable color no, just, i'm not even sure i think so
0: yeah i i loved it though i love it uh, yeah no i i that i you know, i appreciated the moments of levity in the book it was good um, there were very few <laughs> well i mean i it it really um it, it came out in in appropriate moments i thought i thought it was great uh so we've talked a little bit about that. And I think we can understand kind of like, this is what we're talking about is this problem. Like, how does that identification happen? What is going on there? What is the ontological status, right? The the metaphysical real like status of things like red, you know, you have Plato talking about universals. You have uh, the idea of uh, the Quinean idea of where it's like, all these things are just objects and you can just break it down as to you're seeing something in there um but uh you you mentioned kind of in the second half going non-linguistic can you talk a little bit about those accounts and uh you know it seems like you argued a little bit more that that's where you think uh the that's the right way to go why do you think
1: that i mean i i think that i'm not sure what what's the right way to go but i think that uh i think that one reason to go non-linguistic, where remember, not going non-linguistic means not going solely linguistic. So it doesn't like rule out going linguistic in any shape or form. Uh, I think that like the main reason why you should go non-linguistic is that you cannot uh go solely linguistic. <laughs> like, so I think that Got like it. you you cannot um Answer the quest, questions about properties in a satisfactory manner, in a non-question begging manner. Uh, if you go solely linguistic, I think that's my argument anyway. So then, then of course, as as soon as you leave um, arguments from language, like so, like for instance, so one reason why why the Quinean methodology is so attractive is that. Uh, there, there's like there are clear rules to it. Like not entirely clear because like the rules for paraphrasing are a bit unclear <laughs> to me at least. But uh, at least you know. There, and you know, I think Jonathan Schaffer in, in one of his texts, right? Like there's a really attractive feature of um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not Schaffer. Anyway, as uh, a really attractive feature when it comes to um, the Quinean view is that like uh, the, 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 you, there's there's success conditions, you know, like when you've done it right and, and if you've done it right, you know, like what this is what follows, this is, you know, where you're going. Whereas as soon as you go non-linguistic, things as, immediately start to be a little bit less, you know, clear cut, less, you know, yeah. rule. It's unclear. Less
0: rigorous, yes.
1: Yeah, so, um, and of course that's why people, are afraid to go there, right?
0: Right, it's right.
1: Not, it's not very satisfactory to go there. It's like, it's very, very diff- difficult to be right <laughs> about anything. Like, it's very, like, muddied and complicated and so on. But I mean, I still think you you need to go there. And there are ways that you might go there. And I, uh, that I find, uh, that I found also earlier in my career, like, attractive. So, early on in my career, I was very attracted to the, like, truth maker theoretical way of approaching issues in general in metaphysics. And later I've like been interested in more like grounding theoretical uh, approaches to, to, to doing metaphysics. But none of those ways of doing metaphysics is like um, clearly superior to any other or, or even like super good. Like, I don't know, it's like, <laughs> but, but, but it's just that we have, to, uh, we have to try to find a way of, uh, of justifying our ontological conclusions that is not purely linguistic. Hmm.
0: So when we talk about, uh, for sake of time, I want to ask you to do both. But can you talk a little bit about the about grounding and working with grounds to justify ontological conclusions? Well, I understand that you know obviously the solution is going to be messy. Can you can you give some examples of what that looks like?
1: Uh, yeah. So. Um... <laughs> it, it really is a little bit difficult. So, uh, so, so grounding theorist thinks of the world as um, hierarchically structured. Um, so with the grounding theorist thinks that the world, that there are lots of things that exist. So, so for instance, someone like Jonathan Schaffer that I mentioned earlier, uh, so he thinks that, uh, he actually doesn't think that the, the question whether the properties exist uh, is is a question that we should answer grounding theoretically. So he answers that yeah. question in a sense, linguistically. Uh, and he thinks that the answer to that question is trivial. Like, it's so easy to find out whether properties exist. Uh, of course they do. Like, we say things from which we can just, like, uh, with one of these, like, super easy derivations, conclude that properties exist. So... Um, The interesting question that we use grounding for is to find out what properties are. (laughs) and so, um, So since reality is hierarchically structured with the help of these grounding relations, some things exist fundamentally, at least according to some grounding theorists, and then other things exist in virtue of the fundamental things, and then other things exist in virtue of the things that exist in virtue of the fundamental things, and so on and so forth. And,
0: Hence the hierarchy. Yes, yes exactly. And so,
1: if you look at you know uh, the traditional views on uh, properties, say uh, say nominalism, say, say take resemblance nominalism, which is the view on which when the, uh, uh, when we talk as if there are properties, what we are referring to are these uh, resemblance classes of objects. Now. One way of understanding that view is saying that properties exist, but properties are not fundamental. So properties exist, but they exist in virtue of, or they are grounded in, these uh, classes of uh, re- these resemblance classes of objects. Whereas if a uh, universal realist says that properties exist, what they mean by that is that properties are fundamental. So they don't exist in virtue of anything else. Uh, and so uh, that's a way of understanding these distinctions between nominalism and realism, and so on, uh, that I think is more enlightening than than how they are often understood in the literature. And I think that the grounding theoretical literature can be very helpful in hmm. in this respect.
0: Yeah, talking about where um, properties uh, and the, the nature of properties, where that exists in the hierarchy, that does make sense because it's hard to say the properties don't exist in any way. Uh, mm. it, but it makes it more, it makes more sense. You know, obviously like we're talking about red, you know, whether you want to call it the thing that acts as a property or the property, like, you know, that's, that sounds like an like we're just having, uh, language problems, uh, you know, kind of equivocation going on. But when we talk about like how important are properties in objects, yes. um, how fundamental they are, I think that helps, um, when we talk about evaluating different theories, which is kind of for you uh, seems to be the the main point of this is how do we evaluate these different metaphysical approaches?
1: I mean, and I, I mean, you I, I should one should note that like uh, we can people can debate this as well, of course. We can debate anything in philosophy, but uh, I, I still I think that this is uh, an attractive picture, but hmm. there is a cost. Like there is an ontological cost, so. Many people will balk at the idea that like most things that we uh, say exist, exist. Like, so there will be a lot of things that exist in this world. So I think Jonathan uh, Schaffer has one idea, like one, one example where he says that like, uh, it's trivial that God exists, it's just a question of, like, even even the atheist will accept uh, that God exists. It's just that, according to the atheist, God is grounded in the existence of, like, books and traditions. <laughs> you know, God is not fundamental. Right, right. So, uh, so uh, there will be a lot of things that exist, like, on this view. Um, and so for some, that would be, you know, a red flag.
0: Right. Uh, I think you use a pegasus in the book, right? Like. Obviously, like a Pegasus exists as a thing somewhere, even if it's our imagination. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But that makes sense. Right. I mean, that kind of even goes back to I think it's Parmenides, the whole like you can't actually talk about something that is not because as soon as you talk about it, it has some sort of existence. um, If I'm remembering correctly, but uh, that 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 makes sense in my head kind of just as we wrap up what would um what what's something that you can leave to uh that you would want to leave to our listeners um about this topic (laughs)
1: that's a difficult question
0: (laughs) or maybe Um, about philosophy in general i mean you've made some very interesting meta uh points about the like evaluating different theories it doesn't have to be about properties per se but i think uh, the evaluation of theories is a, is a very interesting thing you do in this work. I mean, I think, I
1: mean, I don't know. I mean, I think these are important issues. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I think that even if you don't care what <laughs> the properties exist, <laughs> uh, the same types of questions that I raise for the debate concerning properties, I think you can raise for most debates, not just in philosophy, to be honest. So I think that... Right. Um, we should be very careful when we use like our terms like real explains
0: mm. true
1: like we need to think about um, those things like we of course we can't think about them all the time uh, so sometimes we just have to use them right but right, we should right. be aware that there is like there are, there are many different things we can mean by these things and we should be careful that we're not like talking past each other. And I also would like to say that even if it's not for everyone, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's good that we have philosophers who yeah. <laughs> who take their time and think about these things. Like someone has to do it and uh, we just have to make other people listen to what we say. Yeah. <laughs> and well, also try and to I see it in, in a good way so that you understand.
0: <laughs> I, I love that. I love uh, what you're saying. What uh, talking about there that we have to be careful with the words we use right yeah. and that co- becomes very clear as you begin to talk about properties and the confusion surrounding it it comes from the what uh it, what you're talking about is really the grounds for discussion in general right like we're like well that doesn't explain anything and it's like well explain something to me and <laughs> you know like and you'd see people talking past each other and uh I think that what, what you what you point to in your, your work is definitely um the value of being careful in, in listening and the value of being careful in speaking. And man, I a <laughs> I have a four and seven year old and like that's something I need to walk out and talk to them today, right? Like when you say that, what you say is important and uh and it's worth talking about carefully. Um not and uh, you know, obviously when we talk about uh well, I, I <laughs> this is me being uncareful of my words. Um, Dr. Moran, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for helping me think through what has been, always been a, a bit of a thorn in my side in terms of like, I, I've always had a hard time understanding this and uh, this was helpful today. So thank you.
1: Thank you. It was great.